Before reading our uh, very short scripture lesson today, I wanted to say um, a few words, um, just a few personal words. The time between Christmas Eve and January 7th occupies only 14 days of the calendar, but it seems light years away from the mood and activity of Christmas. We had a tremendous season of Advent and Christmas Eve at Westminster. Our five services on Christmas Eve totaled in attendance 987 people, plus another 200-plus on um, the website, on live stream. So we were over 1,200. It is great so much life in this congregation. And I want to give my thanks to all the staff and the volunteers who do so much to make the music and worship and to set the space for Christmas with flowers and candles with sanctity and holiness, with both silent night and joy to the world. We couldn't do it without all of the volunteers that pitch in um, during this season and all seasons of the year. The day after Christmas, Maggie and I set out for Iowa to see three of the four grandchildren who have become a part of our lives in the last four years. It was a terrific trip. We put 2,200 miles on the car. We left the day after Christmas and got back here Wednesday night, enjoyed relighting the Christmas tree and the outdoor lights just as night fell. I always look forward to coming back to work after the Christmas break. As wonderful an Advent as Christmas services are, I am a creature of rhythms, and a season of rhythm begins in quiet earnest every January and runs until holy week and then picks up again after that this year in 2024 i plan to do something in preaching that i haven't done in years and that is preach from the assigned passages in the lectionary nearly every sunday that i preach i specifically am going to focus on the gospel readings this year so you'll be hearing first from the gospel according to mark up until lent then the gospel according to John during Lent, and then we'll be back with Mark for essentially the rest of 24. I look forward to focusing on and opening up this earliest depiction of who Jesus was and is and how we come to know him as he comes to know us, how we might might respond to him in the world in which we live. But most of all, I look forward to being back with you all behind this pulpit to try to bear witness to something that is much larger than all of us and much larger than our world and receiving back from you in the process as together we put ourselves in place to experience the presence of God through worship and preaching, music and prayer, sacrament and singing, and then to leave hopefully wiser and renewed in our service each week. Let us pray. Lord, may the words we hear from Scripture this day and in the days to come edify us as a people and give you glory. In the name of Christ, amen. So our Scripture lesson today is very short. It's three verses from the first chapter of Mark. First, verse 1, and then verses 9, 10, and 11, I guess four verses. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. So the Gospel of Mark opens with a brief but powerful introduction, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. The Son of God. As a writer, Mark is signaling to us as readers that whatever he is going to reveal and claim about Jesus Christ, the story he is about to tell is good news. Not bad news, not interesting news, not news off the beaten path, not fabricated news, but good news, pure and simple. And the Christ whose good news Mark is about to tell is not simply a great teacher, a strong leader, a charismatic personality, a mover of world history, but rather beyond all these possibilities of who Christ could have been, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, a figure for for whom an instinct of hope had developed in the later periods of the Old Testament most dramatically in the book of Daniel. Mark believes the story he is about to tell us is the fulfillment of this hope, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark then launches into his literary creation, a new form of writing known as a gospel, Connecting past with present and present with future. In those days, Mark says, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Nazareth, a no-name place up north, away from the splendor and glory of Jerusalem. A place that would lead Nathaniel later in the Gospel of John to ask, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth. In those days, Mark says, Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, the Jordan may not mean much to us geographically challenged Westerners, but the Jordan is the river across which the people of Israel had traversed 1,200 years earlier to enter the promised land, the land that had been promised to Abraham and Sarah another 600 years earlier than that. This son of God from this no-name town, can anything good come out of Nazareth, was baptized by John in the Jordan. The Jordan, a place of holy significance, a place of national memory. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, out of the water, 
In the same way, light and firmament and dry land had emerged from the waters at creation. In the same way, under Moses, Jesus' ancestors had crossed the Red Sea water from slavery to freedom. Water, water everywhere. Water, a symbol of freedom and liberation brought by God to the people God had called and created. Water at creation. Water at deliverance. Water at receiving the land. Water at the baptism of the Lord. Water, water everywhere. As Jesus emerged from the waters, he saw the heavens torn apart. Seeing the tearing asunder of heaven of the heavens, it was as if a freshly baptized Jesus is staring into the place of his origin. Not just Nazareth of Galilee, but the heavens. The furthermost place from which he, as the Son of Man, had originated. He saw the heavens. Torn apart. At this holy sight, Jesus receives a stirring of the Spirit, His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, and the Spirit descending upon Him like a dove. Again, this is the same Spirit which had hovered over the watery chaos at creation. The same spirit that had appeared like a dove which had returned to the ark of Noah and his family after the watery chaos of the flood, olive branch between its teeth as a sign of dry land ahead. Still staring into this place of origin with the heavens torn apart, a voice came from heaven. You are my son. The beloved, with you, I am well pleased. Though John the Baptist was present, no one else heard the voice. No bystanders, no disciples, no John, but only Christ alone. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. In these few words, these four verses of introduction, the brilliant writer Mark is introducing us to the story he is about to tell of something that is greater than our human lives, someone who is greater than the shape of our world and its people and its events and its circumstances. Mark is about to tell us of something greater than our own personal salvation. He is about to tell us something greater than any movement of liberation that seeks a just and necessary reordering of society. He is about to tell us something greater than even the best form of our politics and our efforts at governance might take. In Mark's telling, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is just beginning. And we have an entire year ahead to absorb it from just this one gospel. Even as we dare to enter the new year with some measure of hope, many, if not most of us, cannot help but carry in our hearts and minds the serious and deadly stories of human division 
that seem to have brought our world, brought, that seem to have besought our world in even greater force in recent years, particularly after October 7th. These divisions seem to reveal the utter inability for many sectors in our society, us included, indeed in our world, to get beyond the differences of race and class and religion and national origin and ancient feuds, the blood of whose combatants and civilians cry from the ground like the blood of Abel. While we we may draw a moment of hope and respite from hearing Mark describe good news of a heavenly voice speaking to Christ out of a cloud as he emerges from his baptismal waters, it is a beautiful scene and it does inspire us and give us hope. But it's also easy for us to assume that such voices remain in heaven and do not rescue us from the pain and divisions of life on earth. But starting next week in Mark's gospel, we will see that Mark does not allow us to dwell in this cosmic setting of the heavenly voice for very long. As soon as our passage ends, fresh from his hearing the voice and basking in the waters of baptism, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. He inaugurates his public ministry. He calls his disciples from the boats in which they are fishing. And he faces the awful news of the death of the one who has baptized him. And by the time we have finished the Gospel of Mark, which is something I encourage you to do, it actually only takes about an hour or an hour and a half at one sitting to read. By the time we have finished, we will have followed Jesus as he set his face to Jerusalem, as he faced betrayal, arrest, abandonment, trial, torture, crucifixion, and death. And as he is raised from the dead to appear to some of the stunned women and disciples who had followed him and then abandoned him or watched him die from a distance. In the cosmic setting of Mark's telling, the good news of Jesus Christ starts with this dramatic heavenly beginning, but it doesn't linger long there. Earth rises up and calls Jesus and his disciples to live among earth's people, to live into the reign and rule of God, which is the kingdom that Christ brings. A few days ago, I read something that captures for me how powerful an awareness of the cosmic setting of the good news of Jesus Christ is for those of us who accept the call to labor on earth in Christ's name. It came from someone who senses the power of the cosmic setting, but whose faith does not lead him to attach that power to Christ. I have turned to this writer, Leon Wieseltier, for nearly 40 years on matters of war and peace and particularly on matters concerning Israel. In the essay I read, he describes how passionately 
he loves the land of Israel. And how saddened and uncertain he is concerning the most effective way for the nation he loves to respond to the recent terrorist attack. To reestablish safety. And to remain true to its beliefs and values. In that search, this brilliant but tough writer finds himself looking toward a cosmic dimension within his own Jewish faith. Looking beyond the way we are in the here and now. He writes, The love of my people has nothing to do with biology. Peoplehood does not reach that deeply. The species, he writes, the human species, precedes all the peoples, all the differentiations. Even if we go to great pains to try to disguise this humane fact. When when Wieseltier says the species precedes all the peoples, all the differentiations, he is knocking at the door of a cosmic setting, a setting beyond the here and now. He has a sense of something larger, something greater than the specifics of his own love for his native land and for the hurt and pain that love experiences now. That sense of something greater that sense of a cosmic perspective leads him to say, for me, for me, this land will always be the land, though I am not at all against sharing it. Another writer whom the cosmic setting empowers comes from an article that I read this week in my wife's alumni magazine, which came, which was waiting for us when we got home, Trinity University in San Antonio. A professor of creative writing at this university named Kelly Gray Carlisle, who is also a spouse and the parent of a young child, Rights of facing an impending diagnosis for cancer, of cancer. I shiver uncontrollably, she says, no matter how many layers I put on, no matter how closely I wrap myself around my husband's sleeping form. As my husband and I sit in the surgeon's waiting room, I crack joke after bad joke. I keep him in stitches while we wait to to find out if I am going to die sooner or later. My surgeon enters. The words I want you to take away from today's consultation, he says, are very treatable. Easy cancer, she says. I'll probably be fine. But death still feels closer than ever. 
Kelly Gray Carlisle is a teacher of creative writing to college students, some of whom have probably just signed up because it meets a requirement or fits their schedule. The day before surgery, she continues, I teach my class and I teach James Baldwin. And she shares a quote that she shares with the class. Life is tragic, Baldwin writes, simply because the earth turns and the sun inexorably rises and sets. And one day for each of us, the sun will go down for the last, last time. Perhaps the whole root of our trouble, Baldwin writes, the human trouble, is that we will sacrifice all of the bounty, all of the goodness of our lives as we imprison ourselves in totems, taboos, sacrifices, steeples, mosques, races, armies, flags, nations, in order to deny the fact of death, which is the only fact we have. It seems to me, Baldwin concludes, that one ought to rejoice in the fact of death, ought to decide, indeed, to earn one's death by confronting with passion the conundrum of life. Facing a diagnosis of cancer, this young writer and mother finds in Baldwin's ironic words a vision of life that is more powerful and greater and more beautiful than the human divisions of totems and taboos and sacrifices and steeples and mosques and races and armies and flags and nations with which we are so familiar. It is a vision of the inevitability of death, to be sure, but it is a vision which gives her the power to confront with passion the conundrum of life. It is a vision that comes from somewhere else which she receives, encounters, and cherishes in what she calls the gorgeous words of James Baldwin. My friends, most of us in this room, in this sanctuary, in this church, in this place of worship, either seek to place our ultimate trust in Jesus Christ or do, have done so. The source of our visions greater than us are wrapped up in his birth and life, in his death and resurrection, in the gift of his spirit and his promised return. Christ is the cosmic setting to which we turn and toward which we lift our eyes. As we allow Mark to lead us through the story of Christ, my prayer is that the Christ we meet through Mark's excellent writing will enable us to face our fears and to nurture our hopes in the upcoming 
measure of time on earth, which we call 2024. Amen.